Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm grateful to have you with us uh, today. I've gotten several emails from um, uh, people who are listening, sharing their appreciation for the podcast, as well as giving me some ideas on things to touch on going forward. I hope we can get to some of those things. I'm grateful that uh, you've tuned in today. I'm your host, Bill Real. You can email me with any thoughts at uh, or ideas for or concepts for the for the program at realmormon at gmail dot com. You can also find me on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. You can find this podcast on iTunes as well as Mormondiscussion dot podbean dot com. So today here's what I was thinking. There are a lot of people outside of the church, those who are critics who look at Joseph Smith's first vision and and look at the various accounts that we have of that first vision that come from first or second hand sources and they criticize the church and say that these accounts are contradictory. And so as I was uh, in the midst of my own faith crisis some time back, this was one of the things that caught my eye and forced me to kind of re-examine Joseph Smith's first vision. So there are multiple accounts. We'll get into each of them. I think we have nine or ten first or second-hand accounts that are worth uh, at least looking at and talking about. So when I came across this concept of, hey, there's lots of these first vision accounts, they're contradictory to each other, this disproves that Joseph Smith truly had a first vision, and that essentially his doctrine or theology evolved along the way. And I want to put that to rest. That's not the case at all. When every time you, you ever hear that type of uh, complaint about the first vision, I hope in your mind, after we get done talking today, you'll be able to take the word contradictory and switch it with the word complementary. So what I thought we would do is first just talk about each of the accounts, where they come from, how we've got them, and then talk about the things that make them different from each other and see if there's some continuity behind each of these accounts and also talk about why there's differences. So let's run through some of them. The, we'll talk first about the first-hand accounts. These are accounts that come directly from Joseph Smith or a scribe writing for him. And so these are the ones we want to put the most trust in because these are the ones that are closest to the actual first source material. Uh, if we could kind of relate this to a courtroom, these first four accounts would hold more weight than the ones we talk about afterward. You have to realize it's easy for critics of the church to point out when there might be a difference in a second-hand account, and they may give that just as much credence. But if we're really looking at things with a, a fair outlook we need to recognize that um, that just because something is said, that we also have to look at who's saying it and what the stature of that witness is. And so a second-hand account holds less weight than a first-hand account. A third-hand account holds less weight than a second-hand account. And so we understand those things. In fact, in a courtroom, once we get to a third-hand account, those things are, are normally not even heard in a court case. So let's begin. The very first account we have that's a first-hand account is Joseph Smith's uh, account from 1832. This 1832 account 
contains what we have as the earliest known record of Joseph's first vision. It was partly written by him, and it was also partly written by his scribe, Frederick G. Williams. Now, I don't want to delve into what the actual account says. I'm going to leave plenty of resources for you to read those, and it'll be a very cut-and-dry place to go. There's a site, scottwoodward.org. He's a gentleman, member of the church. It's his website. He does a beautiful job of putting these all together so that you can read them at your own leisure. They're just too long for us to go into. If I read each of these, we'll have a we'll have a two-hour podcast today. So we have this very, very first earliest known record. And when we get to the end of all of these, we'll talk about what each record contains and doesn't contain. The second first-hand account we have is from Joseph Smith's journal. It's dated uh, November 9th, 1835. And... Joseph in his journal relates the fact that he shared his first vision experience in the grove to a visitor who came to Kirtland. This gentleman was a gentleman by the name of Robert Matthias. And if you were to go up on Wikipedia and look up Robert Matthias, you want to look for a Robert Matthias who claimed to be Joshua, the Jewish minister. And so this account in Joseph Smith's journal is actually recorded by Warren Cowdery. And so I will read this one. It's really short. Being brought up in my mind respecting the subject of religion and looking at different systems taught the children of men, I knew not who was right or who was wrong, but considered it of the first importance to me that I should be right in matters of so much moment, matter involving eternal consequences. Being thus perplexed in mind, I retired to the silent grove and there bowed down before the Lord under a realizing sense. If the Bible be true... Ask, and you shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened. Seek, and you shall find. And again, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. Information was what I most desired at this time, and with a fixed determination to obtain it, I called on the Lord for the first time in the place above stated. Or, in other words, I made a fruitless attempt to pray. My tongue seemed to be swollen in my mouth so that I could not utter. I heard a noise behind me, like someone walking towards me. I strove again to pray, but could not. The noise of walking seemed to draw nearer. I sprang upon my feet and looked around, but saw no person or thing that was calculated to produce the noise of walking. I kneeled again. My mouth was opened, my tongue loosed. I called upon the Lord in mighty prayer. A pillar of fire appeared above my head, which presently rested down upon me and filled me with unspeakable joy. A personage appeared in the midst of the pillar, in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around and yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared, like unto the first. He said unto me that my sins are forgiven thee. He testified also unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I saw many angels in this vision. I was about fourteen years old when I received this first communication. And so we see that this account matches up pretty darn close with with the official account that we will get into here later. The next first-hand account that we have is Joseph Smith's history, uh, an account from 1838. After many attempts of uh, trying to write the history of the church, uh, President Smith uh, ended up concluding the writings which are now published in our Doctrine and Covenants and also in the history of the church. 
So this is the official version, uh, and it again is contained, essentially, I shouldn't say Doctrine and Covenants, is contained in the Pearl of Great Price. And so we, we should all know this one, um, this story, uh, this account of the first vision that we have here in the 1838 uh, 38 account. The next first-hand account that we have is one that Joseph Smith um, gave in 1843. So there's a gentleman by the name of Israel Daniel Rupp, and he rec- he asked Joseph Smith um, a chapter on the Mormons for his book that he uh, that he was in the midst of writing, and it was going to contain a, a history and, and theology of different religious organizations in the United States. And so this also eventually made its way into what's called the Wentworth Letter. And so this is the the 1843 account. I'll read this one as well. When about 14 years of age, I began to reflect upon the importance of being prepared for a future state. And upon inquiring the plan of salvation, I found that there was a great clash in religious sentiment. If I went to one society, they referred me to one plan and another to another, each one pointing to his own particular creed as the summum bonum of perfection. Considering that all could not be right, and that God could not be the author of so much confusion, I determined to investigate the subject more fully, believing that if God had a church, it would not be split up into factions, and that if he taught one society to worship one way, and administer in one set of ordinances, he would not teach another principles which were diametrically opposed. Believing the word of God, I had confidence in the declaration of James, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. I retired to a secret place in a grove, and began to call upon the Lord, while fervently engaged in supplication, my mind was taken away from the objects with which I was surrounded. And I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision, and saw two glorious personages, who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness. Surrounded with a brilliant light which eclipsed the sun at noonday, they told me that all religious denominations were believing in incorrect doctrines, and that none of them was acknowledged of God as his church and kingdom, and I was expressly commanded to go not after them, at the same time receiving a promise that the fullness of the gospel should at some future time be made known unto me. And so that is... um, the uh, the last of the four official accounts. Now let's briefly go into the second-hand accounts. The first one we have is an account in 1840 from Orson Pratt. Orson Pratt published a, uh, a pamphlet. This pamphlet was titled, A Interesting Account of Several Remarkable Visions and of the Late Discovery of Ancient American Records. This uh, pamphlet was the first time an account of the vision had been published. So even though we had earlier accounts by date that they were given, this is the first one that is published uh, generally to the public. So that's the uh, the first second-hand account. The second one is Orson Hyde's 1842 account. Orson Hyde wrote a treatise on the faith, doctrine, and history of the church. He then uh, translated and then published this work in German. His work was titled Inruf aus der Wust, which was the first time an account of the first vision was published in any foreign language. So that's the, that's the second 
secondhand account. The next one we have is Levi Richards' 1843 account. It says that Levi Richards uh, noted this from a lecture given by George J. Adams about the Book of Mormon together with Joseph Smith's follow-up testimony to Elder Adams' remarks. And so here's the notes that he wrote, and this is pretty short, so I'll share this one. At 6 p.m., heard Elder G.J. Adams upon the Book of Mormon, proved from the 24th, 28th, and 29th of Isaiah, that the everlasting covenant which was set up by Christ and the apostles had been broken. President J. Smith bore testimony to the same, saying that when he was a youth, he began to think about these things, but could not find out which of all the sects were right. He went into the grove and inquired of the Lord, which of all the sects were right? He received for answer that none of them were right, that they were all wrong, and that the everlasting covenant was broken. He said he understood the fullness of the gospel from beginning to end, and could teach it also the, and teach it, and also the order of the priesthood in all its ramifications. Earth and hell had opposed him, and tried to destroy him, but they had not done it, and they never would. So that's a real short account. And keep in mind, too, I mean, obviously, if someone is out listening to uh, Joseph Smith preaching, and then they go home, and then they try to make notes from the things that they heard, chances are there's going to be some things missing from that. And I think that you can tell just by the words that uh, that Levi Richards writes here that, that his synopsis is very general. Uh, so that's that's that one. The next one we have is also in 1843 by a man by the name of David Nye White. And uh, David Nye White is a, a non-Mormon, and he was an editor, in fact, the senior editor of the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette. In 1843, he went to Nauvoo and ended up publishing this account based on an interview he had with the prophet Joseph Smith. The account ended up being published in the New York Spectator on the date of September 23, 1843. And so I'll leave that one. You can certainly read up on these. Like I said, when we get to the end, we'll talk about um, what each account has kind of in it. So the next account that we've got is the Alexander Nybar account of 1844. He was a convert originally from Germany who migrated to Nauvoo with his family. He was a dentist and a linguist. He taught both Hebrew and German uh, to the prophet Joseph Smith. If you remember, uh, Joseph was always very interested in learning more information. Several times in in Kirtland and heading out to Nauvoo, and um, the prophet was always having classes of learning Hebrew and even beginning to, to kind of touch on other languages as well. One day, while still struggling to master the English language, Alexander Nybar recorded in his diary what the prophet had said that day while Nybar visited uh, Joseph in his own home. And so there's that account. And again, most of these are really short. You could certainly probably read through seven or eight of these accounts in 20 minutes or so. There's just a couple of them that are extra long. The next one we have, and actually I'm bouncing around a little bit as far as dates, 
Uh, Parley P. Pratt's 1836 report. Parley P. Pratt and had uh, went to Canada and talked to the saints there about one of the most interesting meetings he had ever attended uh, at the Kirtland Temple. And I'll read this one. He says, One week before word was publicly given that Brother J. Smith Jr. would give relation of the coming forth of the records and also the rise of the church and of his experience. Accordingly, a vast concourse assembled at an early hour. Every seat was crowded and four or five hundred people stood up in the aisles. Brother Smith gave the history of these things, relating many particulars of the manner of his first visions, and etc. And the Spirit and power of God was upon him in bearing testimony, insomuch that many, if not most, of the congregation were in tears. As for myself, I can say that all the reasonings and uncertainty and all the conclusions drawn from the writings of others, however great in themselves, dwindle into insignificance when compared with living testimony, when your eyes see and your ears hear from the living oracles of God. And so this was very brief, very little contained in it, um, but that's what we have. We have an 1835 account, which is called the Joseph Curtis account. Joseph Curtis recalled having a visit with the prophet Joseph Smith in Michigan. This was back in 1835. And the prophet, in a meeting there, stated a reason for the doctrines he taught. And I'll read this. This one's really short. As a revival of some of the sect was going on some of his father's family, joined in with the revival of himself being quite young. He, feeling an anxiety to be religious, his mind somewhat troubled, this scriptures came to his mind, which says, If a man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth liberally and upbraideth not. Believing it, he went with a determination to obtain, to inquire of the Lord himself. After some struggle, the Lord manifested to him that the different sects were wrong, also that the Lord had a great work for him to do. Sorry that I'm struggling reading that. If you go look at this account, uh, the English is very bad in it. And so obviously we have a very, uh, I don't want to say honestly uneducated, because many of the people back then, you have to realize it's a different culture. There actually was considered different ways to spell words. But even just the uh, grammar of some of these sentences is a little, a little rough. But you kind of come to expect that as you look at uh, accounts that come from the 1800s. So I apologize for, uh, for how that was read. So the next one I've got listed here is the John Taylor account uh, from 1879. This is found in the Journal of Discourses. This is uh, 21.161 to 162. And I won't read that one. Again, these will all be available up on the site, and I would encourage you to read them. There's nothing, I don't find anything kind of unusual about any of them. I think they all complement each other very well, actually. Uh, but just because it's a touch longer, we want to kind of move forward. The next one I've got is the 1888 account. This is from George Q. Cannon. George Q. Cannon was a, a, a little, uh, a young boy in Nauvoo when he heard the prophet Joseph Smith uh, talk. He would later uh, obviously become an apostle and then eventually a counselor in the presidency of the church. And so he related his experience from when he was a little boy and having listened to the prophet Joseph Smith. This one's a little longer, 
And so again, I encourage you to go on the site and read that. The next one we have, we don't know the exact year it was given. We know it was in the early 1890s. This one's referred to as the Evan Edward Stevenson Report. The devoted record keeper, Edward Stevenson, was living in Pontiac uh, and heard Joseph speak to a branch of the church there in Michigan. And so, uh, so there's another account there as well. So the last one that we have, at least that I have here, there may be another account or two that I'm unaware of. But the last one I have here is referred to as the Charles L. Walker account of 1893. So a man by the name of John Alger heard the prophet Joseph Smith speak on the first vision. He then related his account to Charles L. Walker, who then recorded it in 1893. And so here's what it says. It says, 2nd February, Thursday, 1893, cold and chilly attended fast meeting. Brother John Alger said while speaking of the prophet Joseph that when he, John, was a small boy, he heard the prophet Joseph relate his vision of seeing the Father and the Son, that God touched his eyes with his finger and said, Joseph, this is my beloved Son, hear him. As soon as the Lord had touched his eyes with his finger, he immediately saw the Savior. After meeting, a few of us questioned him about the matter. And he told us at the bottom of the meeting house steps that he was in the house of Father Smith in Kirtland when Joseph made this declaration, and that Joseph, while speaking of it, put his finger to his right eye, suiting the action with the words so as to illustrate and at the same time impress the occurrence on the minds of those whom, unto whom he was speaking. We enjoyed the conversation very much, as it was something that we had never seen in church history or heard of before. So that's a very interesting account. The implication here, third hand of course, keep that in mind, is that Joseph is relating that not only did the vision occur in all the ways that we've we've heard throughout church, uh, Sunday school classes, sacrament meetings, but that in this account Joseph intimates that that the Lord or the Heavenly Father touched Joseph's eye so that he could then spiritually see the Savior. And the one caution I would throw up here is that, first off, it's the only account that mentions that, I believe. And being that it's third hand, that that makes us somewhat skeptical. And the other thing, too, I was thinking about as I read this was, you c I can imagine Joseph standing up and giving a sermon on his first vision and talking about how the how God had opened up his spiritual eyes to see them. And that by the time this goes through one person into another, that there's this this opportunity for the story to be slightly different than what Joseph himself actually relayed. And so just keep that in mind. So now let's quickly move on. Kind of um, the second half of this podcast is to talk about why it's complementary and not contradictory. And so, the and I will leave, a, there's a couple different ways of exploring this. I'll leave a couple different uh, charts and web pages up on the site where you can see these. But here's, here's the criteria that one of the charts uses. 
so these are several categories. One is religious excitement of the time period that Joseph was, you know, 14 and searching for truth. Uh, second one is Joseph's concern for his soul. The next one is disillusionment with various denominations. Next is Joseph's concern for mankind in general. Following is his quest for forgiveness of sin. Afterwards, his quest to know which church, if any, was right. The next one is his searching the scriptures. Next, his prayer. Following the strange force of opposition. Following that, the appearance of light. Next, the appearance of deity. Next after that, the appearance of not just deity, but two personages. Then there's, in the message itself, three or four parts. There's forgiveness of sins, testimony of Jesus, the admonition to join no church, that they all were wrong, and then a fourth one, the gospel was to be restored. Finally, the last two criteria was that Joseph was filled with love in the last one, unsuccessful effort to get others to believe the story. So, in these accounts, if we start with the ones that, the 1831-32 account, the 1835, the 1838-39, there's the Parley Pratt, the Orson Hyde, the Wentworth Letter, the Spectator Newspaper, and the Nybauer account. And as you go across, for the most part, every one of these criteria are found in multiple accounts. Now, if not, now, now, not every criteria is found in every account. And we have to kind of understand this, right? If you're, if you're making the whole thing up, if I make up a story in my life, and then... This story is crucial to me deceiving others. I'm going to come up with this, you know, story and it's going to be the same every time I tell it. And people want to hold Joseph Smith to the standard that every time he shares his first vision that we should find the exact same story being told. But look at your own life. Do you do that? When you tell people about your 5th birthday and when you got a bicycle, do you tell it the exact same way to everybody? Do you ever get done telling a story about something and go, oh, I wish I would have included that. I should have said that too. But you didn't. So that's one factor. One factor is when we tell stories about things that are truthful, that occurred in our life, the story is not the same each time we tell it, number one. Number two, Joseph has a progression of, of his own understanding of what his role is in this dispensation and in the restoration of the gospel. So in other words, the earlier we go in the accounts, the more likelihood that he does not have a great grasp of what the magnitude of what's going on is. And so we might find that in earlier accounts that he is more focused maybe on forgiveness of his own sins versus the other part of the message, which is the restoration that the Savior and Heavenly Father give him. So Joseph has his own progression of understanding. And so some of the things he thought was important in the vision in 1832 probably are not the same things he would find to be important in the 1843 account. So that's number two. Number three is the audience to which he is speaking. So some of these accounts he's writing in a journal, which obviously will be shared with members of the church. 
Other accounts are given to visitors who came to Kirtland or to Nauvoo and asked Joseph to relay his story, but they were not members of the church, and some of them were even antagonistic, and so he would certainly have shared his story differently depending on which audience he was talking to. And so we have to kind of keep those three things in mind. So going back to these accounts, the 1831-32 account is missing the religious excitement of the period. It's missing the strange force of, of opposition. So it's missing the fact that Joseph's tongue was bound by the adversary in the sacred grove. It's missing the fact that the gospel is to be restored, but it does contain the Savior telling Joseph not to join any church, that they all were wrong. The main thing that the 1831-32 account lacks is that it does not mention directly that two personages visited the prophet Joseph Smith. Every other account we have talks about the father and the son visiting the prophet Joseph Smith. But the, eight, the earliest account does not. And this is really the main point of criticism by those who criticize the church. This is the one they draw attention to. And they'll say Joseph's theology progressed. That he essentially started off with a Trinitarian view and then worked into a view that we have today of the Godhead of all three uh, beings being separate in the Godhead. But I don't know how to explain this. If I share a story, and in the 1832 account, Joseph essentially says, and I was visited by the Lord. Now, if I were to share a story about angelic beings, or let's say I share a story just common in my life, just because I only share that part of it happened, that's not the same as me saying the other part didn't happen. Does that make sense? So if, if I were to say, uh, let's say I went out and I bought a bike and then I took my bike for a ride. If I, you ask me how was my day today and I say I went out and bought a bike and that was the end of the story. That doesn't mean I didn't ride it. It just means I didn't share that with you. And I think we have to understand too, the earlier in these records we go, Joseph, because of having been treated maliciously after the first vision by those that he had shared it with, including ministers in the area, Joseph was very reserved about what he shared and, and when he shared it. And so we need to take each of these accounts into that consideration as well. So the 1832 account leaves out the fact that there's two personages. Every other account states that there is both the father and the son. I also find that the 1832 account, again, focuses much more on Joseph's concern for mankind, much more on his forgiveness for his own personal sins. And the later accounts do not do that. And so Joseph in 1832 sees this whole spiritual experience probably a much, much more personally rather than recognizing that this is this great event for mankind and he just happens to be the the person called to, to participate in this, whereas early on it probably seemed to be a lot more about him.
And, and so if we look through these accounts, you'll find that there might be an account here, an account there that leaves something out. But generally speaking, the themes throughout are found throughout multiple accounts. So I hope that you'll take a chance, read over these uh, First Vision accounts. And if you've ever heard someone come to you before and say, oh, Joseph, you guys have the official version that you guys always talk about, but you don't know about the other seven or eight, and they all contradict each other. Joseph you know, said that this didn't happen and that didn't happen. I don't believe any of that. Look at the record yourself and see what conclusion you come to. I appreciate you being with us today. I know today may have come off a little uh, a little dry, but I think most of us as members of the church lack an understanding of what these other accounts are, where they came from, what they include, why do people who are against our faith say that they are contradictory, and are they really contradictory? And I'll tell you this, having read through them and looked them over and pondered on each of them, I have a much greater appreciation for the first vision, and I hope you will as well. I bear witness that Joseph did see God the Father and Jesus Christ, that he was called to lead this dispensation, that he is and was the prophet, that we have the Book of Mormon because of this wonderful young man who went into a sacred grove, a grove that became sacred, because he sought out his Heavenly Father in an answer to his prayer. And I leave that with you in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining me today at Mormon Discussion. Again, you can email me at realmormon at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. You can find this podcast at iTunes and also at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. May you have a blessed day. And as usual, may the Lord warm your shoulders. They say what they